saturated fats are not all created equal and some don't do harm and some probably do and some may even offer a trade-off of harms and benefits. But people who live the longest have the best health, have the least chronic disease. Do they eat diets high in saturated fat? They do not. Human OS. Learn. Master. Achieve. Is saturated fat healthy? For decades, authorities have warned us to limit intake. This has been called into question recently due to several meta-analyses that have not found an association between saturated fat and heart disease. It's important because heart disease was the main issue that served as the basis for the recommendation to limit saturated fat in the first place. So if there's not an association between saturated fat and heart disease, and that's why we were limiting it in the first place, can we now remove those restrictions from our diet and place our efforts to be healthy elsewhere? In my last interview with biomedical gerontologist Aubrey de Grey, he reminded me of the famous Max Planck quote, science advances one funeral at a time, speaking of the idea that ingrained beliefs are hard to change. So is this a situation where old, established beliefs just won't die? Well, as you're about to hear, the story is not as controversial or revolutionary as it may seem. You have to go beyond the study abstract and look at the follow-up research in order to really understand whether saturated fat is something you should monitor and limit. This interview is with Dr. David Katz, who is the director of the Yale Griffin Prevention Research Program, the president of the American College of Lifestyle Medicine, and the founder of the True Health Initiative. Let's get started. Dr. David Katz, thank you so much for joining Human OS Radio. Uh, really glad to have you here. Uh, it's a pleasure, Dan. Thanks for having me. I have to admit, I've been a big fan of your writing for some time now. I think you do a tremendous job going beyond the single paper to write about the context with which new information falls. Tell us about where you work and the types of projects you're working on. Sure. Well, thank you, Dan. And, and you know, writing actually has become a big part of it. And, and I think that's because, in effect, what I really need to do in my career to advance the mission is reach people with knowledge that's readily available, but kind of covered over by the, the din and the discord in our culture and get people to realize how proximal and how luminous the prize is. And I say that as a specialist in preventive and, and lifestyle medicine. So I trained in internal medicine. And while I was doing that residency and in the hospital 100 hours a week, I couldn't help but see the forest through the trees. You know, here were all these desperately sick people we were trying to keep alive, basically. But we were never going to make them well again. I mean, that wasn't even the goal most of the time because they had chronic diseases we couldn't cure. We just didn't want them to die on our watch and we wanted to do the best we could. But they were never going to be vital. And yet most of them never needed to get that sick in the first place because they had stuff we've known how to prevent for decades. So I went on and did a second residency in preventive medicine. And the rest, as they say, is history. So I run Yale University's Prevention Research Center at Griffin Hospital in Derby, Connecticut, where we study lifestyle interventions to prevent chronic disease. I'm president of the American College of Lifestyle Medicine at the moment. Anyway, my tenure ends soon. And I'm founder of a global initiative called the True Health Initiative, which has convened a coalition of experts from over 30 countries to stand together and say, we agree about the fundamentals of the lifestyle prescription that could add years to lives, life to years, and by the way, help save an imperiled planet into the bargain. And so as you say, I do a lot of writing on various platforms, the Huffington Post, US News and World Report, Forbes, LinkedIn, very well, and several others. 
because really the information is completely solid. We know exactly what lifestyle elements could prevent 80% of all chronic disease. We know exactly what would truly add years to lives and life to years. But somehow we've got to get a critical volume to support that information so it reaches people and persuades people. So a lot of my career now is focused on getting that message delivered. And again, I'm not trying to do it alone. I don't think any one voice can rise above the din. So the True Health Initiative really epitomizes that effort to pool our voices and pull together, kind of like the Who's did in Horton Hears a Who, (laughs) so we can break through and be heard because there is a luminous prize waiting for us on the far side. For some, prevention just becomes, once you start to think about that instead of traditional medicine, treating disease once it happens just becomes their passion and purpose. And I know it has for me and getting exposed to that early on, it was like, this is what I want to contribute my work, my efforts to. But one thing that I've thought has been really needed in our world is really accurate scientific journalism. So many, either if you're a doctor, oftentimes you're treating patients. If you're a researcher, you're doing research and you're publishing, but somebody to translate, this is what this science means so that mainstream people and also doctors and other health professionals can grasp on, understand, work from best possible knowledge is vital. And I think we need more of that. And I really appreciate the fact that you're doing that. It's a tireless effort, but your writing is really clear and filled with things that are sound bites that <laughs> take a, a big idea and actually you know, turn it into something that you can grasp quickly. It's very kind, Dan. Thank you. So you made a couple of key points. First, you know, prevention versus treatment. I agree with you. But on the other hand, as an internist who's taken care of patients for 25 years, one of the mistakes I think we sometimes make is we get very enthusiastic about the power of prevention, and rightly so. But it can sometimes sound like we are denigrating clinical medicine, and I never am. You know, I've been there. I've taken care of patients in the ICU and on the medical wards, and I think just about everybody at one time or another have been at the receiving end. I've had orthopedic surgery, and I've been treated for acute infections. I had a miserable case of a tick-borne illness called anaplasmosis, and I was extremely grateful (laughs) for the antibiotics that got me back on my feet. So, you know, medicine as medicine is really good stuff. Absolutely. But it's limited to the treatment of disease for the most part, whereas lifestyle as medicine can cultivate wellness at its origins. You know, they're parallel propositions and both are noble callings. The problem has been we've had a preferential focus on disease care and we called it health care yeah. while doing almost nothing for actual health care. And that has to be fixed because there's so much at stake. And then in terms of journalism, I think you made an excellent point. You know, docs in practice are busy seeing patients. I mean, maybe the general public has this fantasy that after 12 hours in the clinic, they go home and read for eight hours. But the reality is that a lot of busy docs, they scramble to try and keep up with a few key journals. But a lot of their medical news they get from the New York Times or the Huffington Post or something that they see online, and they get swept up in the pop culture assessment of what something means. And you're absolutely right. If the quality of the journalism isn't good, we can see doctors massively misled. And then the researchers who are populating the literature, they tend to be working in very narrow niches. If you want to succeed as a biomedical researcher, generally the best path to a Nobel Prize is to spend 30 years studying one molecule, just about. You know, highly, highly expert, but a great deal of depth, not much breath. So they too are subject to the interpretations of the media in any area outside that very narrowly defined expertise. So if the quality of medical journalism isn't good, it's not just the general public that can be misled and confused. It really is the professionals, too. Now, I'm pleased to say, and I appreciate the compliment, I'm in some great company. I think Sanjay Gupta at CNN 
is terrific, highly qualified, very thoughtful and very careful. I think Jim Hamblin, who's a doc and a senior medical editor at The Atlantic, is great. And there are a number of others. So it's proud company to be in. But we do have a lot of work to do. And we are outnumbered by the people who do very irresponsible medical journalism, creating confusion and ultimately conspiring against public health. As well-intentioned as someone might be, I frequently find myself frustrated, not when somebody's passionate and wrong about an issue, but when people can be overly confident and dismissive of mainstream medicine's consensus in favor of their own opinion, which can often associate with their own financial reward. For sure. Another key point, and you're making lots from today, uh, Bertrand Russell, among his famous witticisms, said the whole thing wrong with the world is that fools and fanatics are always so sure and wise people so full of doubts. So you're absolutely right. The journalism, if we want to call it that, and these days it doesn't really have to be journalism. It can be somebody's blog, basically social media feed with no filter, no editor, no journalistic qualifications. But the people who are the most sure they're right, mm-hmm. you know, no offense, but they tend to be fools and fanatics. I mean, if you're a real scientist, you're never absolutely sure of anything. And when you are sure, what you're sure of is broad themes. as opposed to very specific points of this is definitely better than that. I mean, very, very rarely hear true scientists get into that. So unfortunately, if you're at the receiving end of this, again, out in the general public looking for some guidance about health, diet in particular, where I focus much of my effort, well, you know, you've got scientists who are routinely saying, well, it's a bit of this and a bit of that. And and then you've got some fool fanatic or profit hound who says, this is absolutely the way it is. I know something nobody else knows or is willing to tell you, and it's very persuasive. But that's the classic huckster on their card selling snake oil. It's just the new age version of it. There's a quote from Daniel Kahneman that I absolutely love. It's from the book, Thinking Fast and Slow. And it's, a story's believability has much more to do with its consistency than its completeness. So scientists tell complete stories. And as you alluded to, it's a little bit of this and it might be this. And you're never quite sure if you're listening and you're trying to figure out what to do yourself of what to do. But those that tell a very consistent, clean story that's full of confidence, you know, there's a reason why some of those people rise to prominence even. And I think it's touching into a unique human trait of following that person who knows the answer. Yeah, I agree completely. And yet we are invited to learn from the follies of history. So we don't just keep repeating them. And nutrition really serves a precautionary tale, if anything does. Mm. So we thought we were told to cut fat, we cut fat and got fatter and sicker. Why? Because we didn't improve the quality of our diets. We ate low fat junk food. And then we were told to cut carbs and we ate low carb junk food and got fatter and sicker. And now we're eating gluten-free junk food and getting fatter and sicker. And Mm -hmm. so unfortunately, it does become quite clear over time that these consistent but incomplete stories do not help us. They don't take us where we want to go. And there comes a time when we need to say, there is stuff we take seriously. There is stuff where we actually look for a complete story because we know it really matters. And the kind of stuff I'm thinking about, Dan, would be educating our children. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, somebody could come along and say, Psst, come on over here. I've got a shortcut for you. You don't have to send your kid to school for all these years. Basically, I've got this special decoder ring. They just need to wear this for three hours and, you know, they'll just skip over all of that. Well, we're not going to believe that because we know the truth. We take managing money seriously. We all know that get-rich-quick schemes are the stuff of sitcoms like The Honeymooners, Mm -hmm. and yet the very same people who have more than enough common sense to reject get-rich-quick schemes line up and reach for their credit cards anytime there's a get-healthy-quick scheme or a lose-weight-quick scheme. We have to get past that and minimally start treating health with some of the respect we show to treat health like wealth, treat health like education, treat health like our careers, things that we know 
require cultivation over time that need to be taken seriously, that generally we invest in to get the returns we're looking for. And we know that a complete understanding, a complete story really does matter. It's not that glossy pitch that's perfectly consistent and sounds a lot like Dumbo's feather. Well, that's what it is. It's Dumbo's feather. It's, It's a false promise. You see this today. There's like these biohacks. In my mind, I've kind of gone back and forth, are they good or bad? And so I decided to define, okay, what would a good hack be? Is this efficient and effective techniques and tools that help address something important? That's great. Bad is, you know, short-term focus ploys that offer solutions of dubious merit to issues that are either real, perceived, or manufactured. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. And the other thing is, these days, because everybody can impersonate a journalist, Mm -hmm. there's there's just the volume of noise, right? So we don't just have the problem of needing good medical journalism. We actually need new mechanisms to rise above the din of bad information. And some of it's well-intentioned, but just wrong. Some of it is just seriously misguided because there are people who put their ideology ahead of epidemiology. They don't really know the data, but they know what they want to be true. And then there's no question there's a significant component of profit ahead of public health. You know, entities that know the truth but are playing fast and loose with it because there's profit in that. And, you know, in the age of the blogosphere, the volume of all of that is just deafening. Yeah. And so, you know, it, it really, no matter how good your information, no matter how credible, you still have to manage to be heard above the din. And that, that really is a new challenge. And there's so many misleading memes these days. Mm-hmm. There's all this focus on the notion that, you know, we've been advising people to reduce their intake of saturated fat, but the real culprit was sugar. The reality is we've been advising people for decades to reduce their intake of both Mm -hmm. the usual sources of saturated fat and sugar. It's amazing how many people seem to be peddling books these days that pretend they discovered the harms of excess sugar last Wednesday. But the reality is there have only been official dietary guidelines in the United States, Dan, since 1980. Mm -hmm. So about 40 years. In the 1980 dietary guidelines for Americans The whole report was distilled down to seven key takeaways, bullets that basically this little diagram that says, here's the gist of the report. Well, number five was eat less sugar. It's been prominent in dietary guidance for 40 years. The problem hasn't been the message. The problem is we haven't been paying any attention to the message and we keep getting duped into doing silly things that just make the situation worse. It is that. And you mentioned there's always a new and bad version of some good idea, some something new kind of comes into existence, people get excited about it, a movement grows, and there becomes worse versions of it as it gravitates towards this energy-dense, palatable options that may or may not be different than the standard American diet, really. It's essentially junk food with a gluten-free label. There's always a way to shift the problem, yet the problem persists. Yeah, well, actually, two elements. First of all, there is no single nutrient focus that the food industry can't exploit. I mean, it just becomes a halo that they can put over junk food. So, you know, again, these days there's a cottage industry in gluten-free junk food or non-GMO junk food, just as we've had cottage industries in fat-free junk food, low-carb junk food, and on and on it goes. So any one nutrient does not capture the essence of a high-quality diet. It's just putty in the hands of big food, which exploit the halo effect and profit from it. But the other thing is, Dan, that sometimes these epiphanies, it's not something we haven't heard before. We've got another problem, and that is extremely short attention spans. And it's always been an issue, but frankly, our attention spans just keep getting shorter and shorter as we're overwhelmed with electronic information and gadgetry. But that is true. For example, Atkins. The Atkins diet went into the stratosphere 
in the early 2000s, with a little bit of help from Gary Taubes and his coverage of the diet on the front page of the New York Times Magazine. But the books that were being profiled then, which came out in the 1990s, were a complete, almost verbatim redo of books that Atkins originally published in the 1970s. Mm-hmm. And pretty much all that had changed between what he said in the 1970s, which you know obviously didn't do public health any good, and what he said in the 1990s was that the people who had seen the books in the 1970s had forgotten all about it. And so it used to be a 20-year cycle. Then it was a 10-year cycle. Then it was a five-year cycle. And frankly, now I think it's a 20-minute <laughs> cycle before we've forgotten what we thought we knew a little earlier today and are ready to buy it all over again. So none of this stuff actually is new. I mean, the, the current focus on sugar, you can see videos on YouTube of Jack LaLanne. Now, how the heck Jack LaLanne made YouTube videos, I have no idea. But anyway, <laughs> you can see videos of Jack LaLanne on YouTube basically inveighing against the harms uh, of excess sugar from 70 years ago. None of this stuff is new. Wow. You know, I'm going to write the new, new Atkins diet because I'm going to take a killing. (laughs) (laughs) You could. I got news for you. I've had that offer. Yeah. Several times in my career, I've had publishers approach me because of my stature and platform and following. And they sort of told me this is the popular concept du jour, you could write the next big book on this topic. And there was only one problem. Mm. It was BS. Mm. So I was never willing to do it. And consequently, the books that I have written haven't sold nearly that well. (laughs) But at least they tell the truth. That's the good news. Yeah. Well, you got to start off by saying the industry didn't want you to know. There's got a lot of of conspiracy, a lot of people working against you. That's right. That's right. I am the renegade genius, you know, who knows the truth that either no one else knows or is willing to tell you. Yes. It's absolutely a formula. And then, you know, the other thing is, and a good example of this is a book like Grain Brain by David Perlmutter. Mm -hmm. First of all, these are people with medical credentials. Mm -hmm. But what they do, and you've got to be extremely well informed on the topic to know this, is they cite the literature selectively. Mm -hmm. So if you're going to make the argument that the way to avoid dementia is is to not eat grains... Mm -hmm. You have to ignore the vast literature that associates whole grain consumption with basically every conceivable good health outcome, including longevity and the avoidance of dementia. Mm -hmm. So what you do is you selectively cite only the literature that supports your hypothesis. But because you're citing the literature, it makes you sound very erudite. And of course, the average reader of that book doesn't read the scientific literature in the first place. So maybe you've cited... 200 studies, 300 studies. I mean, it sounds like an incontrovertible mass of evidence. What the reader doesn't know is for every study you cited that supported your hypothesis, there were 10 or 100 or 1,000 (laughs) arguing the other way, and you very carefully ignored all of those. So there's a formula, and it is promise the moon and stars, Dumbo's feather will get you there. You know, there's a magic silver bullet, or and, and there's usually a scapegoat, and there's a conspiracy theory, and only I know the truth, or only I'm willing to tell the truth, and then I'm going to selectively cite the literature, and you're never going to know about that, so it's going to all sound very convincing and erudite, and round and round we go. In our manifesto, which admittedly sounds super weird to say, we're more about a process and not a perspective. So this process arrives at a recommendation instead of starting off with a belief and then trying to support that. In fact, the health courses that we're creating are not trying to be comprehensive. It's just too much. It's it's not the best way to be helpful. But we do aim to be representative of what a comprehensive literature base tells us. That's where we want to start to develop beliefs, confidence, and clarity for people, and not some recommendation based off of cherry-picked literature. 
Exactly. And if you approach the mission without bias and without trying to sell a particular answer, that's exactly the right way to do it, Dan. You, you follow the weight of evidence. It's usually quite clear. And by the way, we've been talking around this, and for people listening, I think we ought to get it out there. The fundamental truths of a health-promoting dietary pattern are perfectly clear. They're supported by a vast amount of science, by sense, by a global consensus of experts, and they play out in the real world in places like the Blue Zones, which I suspect people have heard about, where mm-hmm. the world longest lived, healthiest people reside. They play out in the North Karelia project where what we know was turned into a community-wide intervention that slashed rates of heart disease by over 80% and added 10 years to life expectancy over the last 40 years. And those fundamentals are that your diet should emphasize vegetables, fruits, whole grains, beans, lentils, nuts and seeds, and water for thirst. You want to eat fish and seafood, that's a good idea for you. I'm not so sure anymore it's a good idea for the oceans. Mm -hmm. But I would definitely put that in there for human health. We just have to make sure that our fisheries are sustainable. Everything else really is discretionary. You want to eat eggs, eat eggs. You want to eat chicken, eat chicken. But when you start getting into animal products, you have to be very careful about how the animals are raised and fed and treated. I don't think anybody wants to put cruelty on the menu. And then once you get into eating mammals, so now we're talking about meat and in particular beef, the environmental impact is a huge consideration. And, you know, as we're pushing 8 billion Homo sapiens on the planet and we're all looking out and, you know, watching the glaciers melt, we really have to take very seriously issues like preservation of our aquifers, stabilization of the climate, land use, biodiversity, the planet is in peril. And even if we had doubts about the role of meat in human health, we have an overwhelmingly convincing environmental argument to eat less meat and eat more plant-predominant diets. So when you do all that math, it's a clear message. And, and by the way, you know, in terms of the details, Does it mean eat less saturated fat? Yeah, because a diet rich in vegetables, fruits, whole grains, beans, lentils, nuts, and seeds is just naturally pretty low in saturated fat. It doesn't have to be low in total fat because the nuts and seeds and olives and avocado and and if you eat fish and seafood, all relatively high in fat but healthy unsaturated fat. But it's low in added salt because you're not eating processed foods. It's low in added sugar because you're not eating processed foods. It's low in added sugar because you're drinking water instead of soda. All of those specific nutrient ills get fixed if you get the basic foods right. So wholesome foods, sensible combinations. And just to be clear, Dan, this is something I've devoted many years of my life to, but I've also written three editions of a leading nutrition textbook that's widely used in medical schools. And the most recent of those editions came out in 2014, has close to 10,000 scientific citations. And and I say that mm. both to make sure people realize they should never write a textbook because it's just <laughs> horribly, horribly painful. Oh my gosh. But the main point is that it's sort of an obligatory view from altitude. You can't do that work and not look from on high at all of the evidence and consider it fairly. And it's just incredibly clear. Yeah. Vegetables, fruits, whole grains, beans, lentils, nuts and seeds, yet olive oil, avocado, water for thirst. It's just a short list of priorities. If your diet is mostly that in minimally processed form, you're going to be fine. Yeah. And then if you want to be vegan, be vegan. You want a Mediterranean diet, fine. You want a flexitarian diet, fine. You want to, I mean, there all sorts of variations on the theme, but the theme is perfectly clear. Let's drill down on fat. This is a topic that does inspire a lot of confusion which then creates, I think, an opening for people to put forth an alternative perspective that challenges what health authorities might say is, um, you know, the accurate way to view something. One big problem of talking about something like fat 
is that this is a class of nutrients and individual nutrients within that class have very different effects on human physiology. When you say dietary fat does this, it's like saying drugs do this. And this is where we really run into a lot of trouble. Dan, you're just nailing it today. I mean, that's a beautiful illustration. Drugs do this. What a silly thing to say, right? I mean, everybody knows. I mean, there, there's a vast range of drugs in any pharmacy. Right. They do very different things. They have very different side effects. So, yeah, so, so summary judgment about fat is just about as silly as summary judgment about all drugs. I think that's a beautiful comparison. And then when you get into the specifics of different kinds of fat, you know, then it would be mm -hmm. like saying all antibiotics are exactly the same or, or all painkillers are exactly the same. So we've got saturated fat, we've got monounsaturated fat, we've got polyunsaturated fat. And within those classes, there are lots of individual members with lots of individual properties. And, and we could get into the details of this. We probably should talk a bit about saturated fat in particular because the confusion there is, is almost boundless. Yeah. But the simple reality is, let's go back to the beginning of the fat fixation. And you know, these days, it used to be that everybody credited Ansel Keys mm -hmm. for focusing our attention on fat. These days, more often, he's being blamed for it. But the reality is that what Keys did, you know, whether you love him or hate him, the historical reality is he looked at different populations and their rates of heart disease in particular he was focused on, but other cardiometabolic disease, and looked at variations in lifestyle to account for that. He was an epidemiologist and essentially noticed that populations that were eating lots of plants and, and less meat and dairy in their diets tended to have much lower rates of heart disease. And, and this sort of got translated ultimately into shorthand, initially less saturated fat, and then further truncated into low-fat diets. But at the time that that advice first started to capture our imagination, the only way to reduce dietary fat intake was to eat naturally low-fat foods because low-fat junk food hadn't been invented yet. There were no snack roll cookies mm. when Keyes first offered up his advice. Well, what are the naturally low-fat foods? Vegetables, fruits, whole grains, beans, and lentils. I mean, basically, Keyes was saying if you eat more of that, it's probably going to be good for you. And you know what? It's absolutely right. Mm -hmm. If we only look at the research done since Ansel Keyes, it would prove that point. I mean, if Keyes had never lived and never said a word we would still know exactly what we know about those foods being good for health and reducing rates of heart disease and everything else. But we got a essentially a dumbed-down message, just cut fat. It got perverted into snack roll cookies by big food for profit. Uh -huh. And then we wound up thinking that these leading scientists told us to eat snack roll cookies. Well, that's just nonsense. I mean, if anybody can find me the quote where Ansel Keys or, or pick anybody like Dean Ornish tells you to eat snack roll cookies, I'll give up my day job and become a hula dancer for crying out loud. <laughs> <laughs> and so we basically just dumb down the message, and then we keep doing it. And, and these days, there's a particular focus on saturated fat and the idea that we got it wrong. Yeah. But it's just not true. I mean, essentially, the studies that are cited most routinely, I don't know how deep in the weeds you want to go, Dan, but there are actually two meta-analyses yeah. that everybody who thinks they know that saturated fat is good for us now tend to cite obviously without having actually read them. Uh, one was by Siri Torino et al. in 2010, yep. and the other was by Chattery et al. in 2014. And to save ourselves a lot of agonizing detail, we can simply say this. Effectively, what both of these review papers concluded, looking at the massive evidence, was that when you compare the high and low end of saturated fat intake in the U.S. and other developed countries, you tended to see exactly the same rates of heart disease. Right. Now, there are two key issues there. One, 
the high and low end of saturated fat intake, we're not very far apart and we're both pretty high yeah. because in our culture we eat a lot of the sources of saturated fat, pepperoni pizza and such. And the rates of heart disease were comparably high both times. There's nothing in that that suggests saturated fat is good for us. It Basically what it says is when people ate high amounts of saturated fat, they had high rates of heart disease. And when they ate a bit less saturated fat, they had the same rates of heart disease. Well, that begs the question. You know, the people eating a bit less saturated what were they eating instead? And we know the answer. They were eating snack roll cookies. I mean, the people in our culture who tried to reduce their fat intake, it's not as if they were eating more Brussels sprouts and lentils. Yeah. We know exactly what happened. They ate low-fat junk food. So essentially what all this literature tells us is that in excess of added sugar and refined carbohydrate and in excess of saturated fat from the usual sources like processed meats and processed dairy are exactly commensurately bad for us. We have discovered more than one way to eat badly. That's all any of this is really telling us. Yeah. And you juxtapose that with what we know about eating well, you know, Mediterranean diet or vegetarian diet where either your diet's low in fat or high in fat, it doesn't matter, but where most of the fat is coming from nuts, seeds, olive oil, avocado, fish, seafood, very little of it is saturated. And by the way, if you want to bring the paleo diet into the mix, and I've had you know lengthy discussions with some of the world's leading experts on that topic, in particular Boyd Eaton, mm -hmm. who's arguably the founding father of our understanding mm -hmm. of the paleo diet. The kind of meat our Stone Age ancestors ate is nothing like yeah. the kind of meat most people are eating today. So you know the idea that I'm paleo, therefore I can eat pastrami, yeah. you know, is just nonsense. There was no paleolithic pastrami. You know, thinking about the results from the meta-analyses discussed, there's analogy, it might not be a great one, but let's say you're looking at hydration levels and glasses of water. Well, hydration status might not change very much between the bottom and top quartile if the range of water consumed is between, let's say, seven and nine glasses per day. You're already in a range where you're gonna be well hydrated. This is really different than if you're comparing groups that were consuming one glass per day versus eight glasses per day. Yes, exactly. I think there were really two key blind spots in those papers. I think that the more important of the two was instead of what, right. right? I mean, so if you replace saturated fat with sugar, it doesn't make you healthy. Well, duh. I mean, who would think that it would? Right. But on the other hand, if you cut back on deli meats and you eat more beans and lentils and vegetables and fruits, absolutely that will make you healthy. It'll help. Yeah. So the first key issue is instead of what? And then the other is, yeah, okay, so what we're asking is as X varies, does Y vary? And X is intake of saturated fat and Y is the rates of heart disease. And if you say, as X varied, we saw no variation in Y, the, the obvious question is, well, how much did X vary? And as you say, very, very little. I mean, everybody in these studies was at a pretty high intake of saturated fat. The high end and the low end were both high and not very far apart. And you're exactly right. It's like saying, okay, we're going to compare people who routinely drink seven glasses of water a day to people who routinely drink eight or nine glasses of water a day, and gee, we didn't see any major differences there in mortality. Yeah. Well, what a stunning revelation that is. Well, if X doesn't vary, it's not going to produce any variation in Y, and that's kind of non-news, yeah. except with regard to nutrition and how we roll in our culture, because almost every nonsense you can peddle becomes nutrition news. I feel sorry for people out there that are interested in health that are reading about this because what you hear is that the high and low range of saturated fat showed no difference in coronary heart disease. It's just misleading because the story that you're telling is accurate, understandable, and it just does people a lot more good. It's like a facepalm. It is a facepalm. And yet, you know, I think the reason for it is the obvious one. People like 
meat. And I understand that. I mean, I think we are constitutionally omnivorous. Our, our species has been omnivorous for a very long time. I think so too. Yeah. There are two major problems with that. I mean, one is the kind of meat we're raising today is nothing, compositionally nothing like the meat we're adapted to eat. But two, yep. you know, back in the days when we were adapting to eat meat, there were 100 million or fewer homo sapiens on the planet. There are nearly 8 billion now. It, it's just a different day, a different set of priorities. We cannot be carnivorous. I was very privileged to share the podium with Boyd Eat. And for those who don't know, I think really our focus on the paleo diet began in 1985 with a seminal paper in the New England Journal of Medicine by Boyd Eaton and his colleague at Emory, Mel Connor. Mm. And then they've populated the peer-reviewed literature with great stuff on the topic ever since. And so anybody who knows anything about the paleo diet has learned it in part from Boyd. And Boyd was saying, look, I like meat. I, I think we're hardwired to like meat, and it's just too damn bad. You know, what we can do is use our adaptations to a Stone Age diet to inform some of what we do in the modern age. But with nearly 8 billion of us on the planet, we've got to get that protein mostly from plant sources for the sake of the planet, if not for our own health. And frankly, it pertains to both. But if we are hardwired to like meat and you deliver the message, hey, I've decided that the truth is bacon is good for you, well, you know, it's not very difficult to sell your book. So it's, it's a winning formula, but unfortunately, it's wrong. Reduced down to the very popular gluten is bad, bacon is rad <laughs> t-shirt that is worn. <laughs> you know, I've been a part of the Ancestral Health Symposium since the beginning. My mentor, Hanno Pell in the Netherlands, has been writing actually about the subject for a while. I heard about it from him first, found out that there was more of a popular movement. The first one was at UCLA. Then the next year is at Harvard. And actually, we celebrated a speaker's dinner at Boyd's house on the third year. It's a concept that's really wow. compelling in a lot of ways. Absolutely. I routinely point out, Dan, so we're having this, this sort of meandering conversation about diet and lifestyle and health. I think one of the relevant questions people could ask themselves is, how is it that we even could be clueless about the basic care and feeding of homo sapiens, yet know what to feed horses and sheep and tropical fish and koala bears and giant pandas? And does it even make any sense? When you go to visit a zoo, if you think, gee, how do they know what to feed these critters? I'll tell you one thing, they don't run randomized clinical trials where yeah. they try the koala bears on hunks of wildebeest and see how they do. It's simpler than that. Mm -hmm. they, they give all the animals food closely related to what they eat in the wild. And that is the power of adaptation. Giant pandas survive on one of the least nutritious foods on the planet, bamboo, and they can survive on absolutely nothing else. Why? Because they're adapted to eat bamboo. Uh, eucalyptus leaves terribly poor in nutrition and actually pretty high in some toxins, but it's the only stuff koala bears can eat. Why? The power of adaptation. So I think that the relevance of ancestral diets and our adaptations couldn't be any greater but then we have to acknowledge we're not in the Paleolithic anymore, and everything our Stone Age ancestors ate is extinct, plants and animals alike. What we have now is the opportunity to learn from those dietary patterns and use modern foods to try and approximate them. But we have to be honest. Most people who wave the Paleo banner have no interest in eating bugs. They have no interest in eating 100 grams of fiber a day. And if you read Boyd's work, one of the consistent conclusions is that our Stone Age ancestors got about 100 grams of fiber a day. I don't know anybody who has that much time to spend in the bathroom, frankly. <laughs> you know, and they, they did hard physical work every day. They yeah. covered miles. I mean, all of that. So, okay, you know, in for a penny, in for a pound. You want to be paleo, be paleo. You eat only the flesh of wild animals. 
You eat a wide variety of plant food. You eat no added sugar other than honey that you wrestle from the bees. And you do a lot of physical work. You eat 100 grams of fiber a day and you're in the bathroom five minutes or squatting <laughs> in an open field. Um, right. Otherwise, it's not paleo. So I think the opportunity to learn from adaptation, essentially when we talk about ancestral diets, what we're really talking about is the relevance of adaptation to all of biology. All I can say is here, here, of course. It, it pertains to every other species. Of course, it pertains to ours as well. But then we have to figure out, okay, what do we do with that information in a modern world where there are nearly 8 billion homo sapiens, where the kind of meat available to most of us is not the kind of meat our ancestors ate? What do we learn and how do we use it? And, and honestly, I don't know that I've ever heard anybody address it better than Boyd Eaton. That movement is so much bigger than just the diet, although the diet is the most well-known. When you think of paleo, you think of the diet. The ancestral health movement is looking at light patterns, physical activity patterns, our relationship with microbes, our relationship with each other. And that's, to me, the most exciting part. It's really not just the diet, but it's how does this framework, this mental understanding guide modern-day health directives by helping us live more like our ancestors? That is really cool. I totally agree. So there's a holistic element to our adaptations. On the other hand, it's interesting. Actually, I'm reading a book now on evolutionary biology called The Story of the Human Body by Daniel Lieberman. Great book. Uh, I was a biologist at Harvard. And up until fairly recently, human stature, so basically peak height, was lower mm -hmm. than during the Paleolithic, suggesting that the source of nutriture was better for human need then than now. But we have now surpassed yeah. Paleolithic height on average. We've obviously surpassed Paleolithic life expectancy for the most part. We've overcome a number of liabilities that we dealt with back then. We have a whole host of new ones. So I think the critical piece is we can pass what we know about ancestral health through a modern filter and maybe produce something that's even better. That we need to. But we have to be thoughtful about it. Absolutely. We have to look at the conditions of modern society and ask what our needs are for health today because the world is a very different place. And some of our preferences that allowed us to flourish in the Pleistocene may be disadvantaged health-wise in today's environment. We need to use our minds, our neocortex here, to make some better decisions and say, okay, what is the reality of our environment today? I'm accustomed to saying that the human brain is exactly the wrong size. I have four of my best friends on the planet have four legs apiece, three dogs and, and my horse. Spend a lot of time with all of them. And you know, one of the things that I love about their company is just their their purity, the simple honesty. You know, they want what they want, they like what they like, what what frightens them frightens them. I mean, it's all just honest, it's transparent. And so our brains could be a bit smaller and we'd be pure and simple like that. Or they could be a bit bigger and maybe we'd figure out how to fix all the messes we've made. But they're right in the middle where we're just so good at messes and mischief. So uh, and I'm hoping we eventually evolve past that, but <laughs> we gotta live through it in the time being. Okay, I wanna talk about one more thing. We talked about two meta-analyses earlier, one by Rajiv Chowdhury and colleagues, and the other by Patty Siri Torino and colleagues. And these both caused us to reconsider the whole issue, and for many to reinterpret the issue of saturated fat altogether, which you helped us understand the meaning of these studies better. Now let's talk about butter. And an even more recent meta-analysis by Laura Pimpin and her colleagues asked this question about butter. And when we think of saturated fat, butter comes to mind. But it's, of course, not all saturated fat. It also has oleic acid in it and butyrate, which is another type of fat. What do you think about butter and how it affects the saturated fat discussion? One of the people who's contributed a lot to this dialogue in the peer-reviewed literature is Darry Mozafarian, yeah. who is the dean of nutrition at Tufts. And I think when given the opportunity to say, here's what I think it all means, Darry's actually done a beautiful job. And he said, you know, all this talk about butter is back 
begs the question, compared to what? If we mean compared to stick margarine, which, by the way, used to be loaded up with trans fat, absolutely. But, you know, butter's back and has been back for a long time. But if we mean compared to olive oil, Mm -hmm. extra virgin olive oil, absolutely not. It's kind of a spectrum. So it looks as if there's a mix of saturated fats and dairy products, some of which still appear to be harmful. They're pro-inflammatory, they're pro-atherogenic, which means they contribute to the plaque that gums up our coronary arteries. But they have other saturated fats that may offer some metabolic advantages. It's a bit of a mix. The net effect of eating butter, though, I'm aware of absolutely no literature with the exception of one study in, believe it or not, dolphins, I'm aware of no literature showing health benefit from consuming butter. None. I mean, despite all of the hype, when you clear the smoke out of the way, I can find nothing in the literature that says people who ate more butter had better health outcomes. But you routinely find exactly that conclusion regarding olive oil. And you find exactly that conclusion regarding the fat that's intrinsic to nuts. So, you know, compared to what? The simple reality is I don't eat any butter, Dan. I don't Mm. miss it. I don't like it. Mm-hmm. If I'm going to dunk my bread in anything, it's olive oil. So I don't eat stick margarine. And if the choice for me were between stick margarine and butter, I'd choose butter. But I don't choose either. Why settle for not bad for you or not as bad for you as we thought or has a mix of fatty acids, some of which are bad for you and some of which are innocuous, which is pretty much where we are. Yeah. Um, Now, there are other interesting foods related to the saturated fat composition. So the the predominant fatty acid in dark chocolate is a saturated fat called stearic acid. The literature is very convincing that stearic acid is innocuous. Right. Beneficial? No. I'm not aware of any literature saying eat more stearic acid and it will make you healthier. It just appears to be harmless. And then the net effect of eating dark chocolate is beneficial because it's a concentrated source of antioxidants called bioflavonoids. It's a concentrated source of magnesium and arginine, which is a beneficial amino acid, and on and on it goes. And then the other one that's really interesting is lauric acid, mm-hmm. which is the predominant saturated fat in coconut oil. But again, despite all the hype about coconut oil, you know, just drink coconut oil and you can leave tall buildings in a single bound, baloney. I've seen no evidence in the literature of clear health benefit from coconut oil, but it looks likely that lauric acid is also innocuous. So when you sift through all of this stuff, you say, okay, very, very clear that saturated fats are not all created equal, and and some don't do harm, and some probably do, and and some may even offer a trade-off of harms and benefits. But still, the people who live the longest have the best health, have the least chronic disease. Do they eat diets high in saturated fat? They do not. And the fats most consistently associated with health benefit are monounsaturated fats like the oleic acid that predominates in olive oil and a balance of polyunsaturated fats found in the usual suspects, olive oil, avocado, nuts, seeds, fish, seafood. And at the end of all of this, Dan, the best way to clear through the clutter is basically take a page from Michael Pollan's playbook. And Pollan said, eat food, not too much, mostly plants. And, and you know, the, the rest of that 13,000-word essay in the New York Times Magazine back in 2008 was mostly an argument against fixating on nutrients and an argument for thinking about food. So I really preach that gospel more and more and say, look, you want to get your fats right, get your foods right. If you're mostly getting your fats, and and I do this personally, from nuts and seeds and nut butter and avocado and olive oil and other healthy cooking oils and fish and seafood. If you want to occasionally have coconut, fine. And you want to have some dark chocolate, absolutely fine. And if you want a bit of butter in your diet from time to time, also fine. But if mostly the fat in your diet comes from nuts and seeds and avocado and olive oil and fish and seafood, 
all will be well because those are wholesome foods associated with better health outcomes. And surprise, the fatty acid composition of those foods is a balanced, healthy array of fatty acids associated with good health outcomes. Get the foods right, the nutrients will take care of themselves. And that really should be the new age mantra. And how often in health is the healthy replacement actually really delicious? And that's what you get with cold pressed olive oil. Yeah, sure. I love butter. I really love olive oil too. And for me, it's a pretty easy shift because the evidence, my gosh, I'm not sure if you've seen the study, but there's a series of small studies by Sunil Peers and colleagues where they replace cream with olive oil and they measure people for about a month. And just in this one month time, people lost over five pounds of fat, not just weight, but fat in that small, short period of time. Right. And then there was a huge study by Lee et al. out of Harvard that actually answered the question the two meta-analyses we've been talking about up until now failed to address, which is, you know, when people reduce their saturated fat intake, what replaces it? And what that study found in 130,000 people uh, followed for decades was that if they replace saturated fat calories with unsaturated fat calories from nuts, seeds, olive oil, avocado, etc., rates of heart disease and all-cause mortality went down dramatically. And whole grains. Yeah. And there actually there have been other studies that have reaffirmed it since. You know, again, we're saying the same thing, Dan, that the message about the, the, the food pattern is clear enough. But I think you raise another key point in the final minutes here, and that is you can learn to love food that loves you back. Uh, that's the tagline. My wife has a beautiful free recipe site, Quizinicity.com. It's like Cuisine City, but with an I in the middle, Quizinicity.com. It's all the Cat's Family Greatest Hits, and you can mm-hmm. help yourself for free there. But the tagline is love the food that loves you back. And the way to get there from here. So you're saying butter is great, but so is olive oil. If you think butter is great, but you don't think, you know, really fragrant, extra virgin olive oil is great, it's probably just because you're not used to eating it. Taste buds learn to love the foods they're with. And one of the ways to improve your diet sustainably is to actually trade up within categories and give yourself a little bit of time to habituate. Because the new is always a bit of a challenge, but it just takes a couple weeks to start saying, yeah, you know, this is pretty good and I can get used to this. And then and then you're a few weeks in and you can't remember what the fuss was about. And then you're a few months in and it's just the new way of normal. And so you can do that in every food category and, and trade up and make little shifts. I call that taste bud rehab because frankly, taste buds in the U.S. are so acclimated to a diet that is loaded up with sugar, salt, and food chemicals. And that tastes normal. Mm. But what it really means is your taste buds are in a sugar and salt induced coma. And if you rehab them so that they become sensitive to sugar and salt, you need much, much less to be fully satisfied. And you can spend the rest of your life literally loving food that loves you back by supporting your health and vitality. And the reason to do that also, I think, gets too little mention. It's not because a doctor like me wags an admonishing finger and says you should. I think all too often health takes on moral overtones. The reason is Healthy people have more fun. The reason to invest in your health is not because anyone else says you should, but because if you've got health, you'll spend more of your life doing the things that you want to do. It's just a simple fact. And the good news is you can drive pleasure from food that's good and from health that's good as opposed to paying for one with the other. And, and I think it's, it's a luminous opportunity all too many people are missing out on. Life in years. Add years to lives, life to years, exactly. Yeah, that's a great one. Well... Fantastic. Thank you so much for taking the time to come and chat with us about a general perspective about health, which is so needed. And then also to drill down to dietary fats and to discuss some of these confusing, seemingly meta-analyses that have spawned a lot of writing about how, hey, these things are actually good for us. Don't listen to the experts and actually what the reality is. And hopefully all the listeners will take that to heart. 
I really appreciate your time today. Well, likewise, Dan. It's been a pleasure. I'll look forward to our next conversation. Oh, yeah. I can't wait to have you back on. Thanks for listening and come visit us soon at humanos.me.